surveys of Europeans, they've been asked, tourists from what country are the easiest to pick out? And the answer has come back pretty consistently. Anybody want to guess what country? The USA, that's right. The Americans, they're the ones who are easiest to pick out. And they were asked, well, why, why is that the case? And it's because there were certain things that, they, that we have in common, apparently, when we're traveling abroad. Here are some of them right here. They don't have any idea whether 27 degrees Celsius are hot or cold. Americans just don't know that, apparently. Or here's another one. They get their drinks to go. In Europe, they don't do that. They actually sit and enjoy their drinks, unlike people in America, apparently. Another one is this, that they are fascinated by any buildings that are older than 1776, because we don't have any of those around here. Also, they said you can tell Americans because they're the ones who are wearing cargo shorts and the only ones to wear. And they said you most definitely can tell Americans because they're only, the only ones who ever wear Hawaiian shirts and even put them together, Hawaiian shirts and cargo shirts. They said, if you want to see clearly who are the Americans, then you can look at those distinctive features, and you can recognize that those are the people from the other side of the pond. And today we're going to consider some other things that are also very important that we would look at if we want to see clearly. This idea of see, seeing clearly is what is uniting all of what we want to talk about here together today. And this is what we're going to be leaning into. And unfortunately, unlike Americans in Europe who think that if somebody doesn't speak English, that all of a sudden they'll understand, if you just start enunciating and speaking louder, they'll understand all of Where is the nearest McDonald's? Like they'll know, right? Unfortunately, unlike picking out Americans, the things that we're going to be considering together today these are things that are actually or can be very difficult to see, things that can be very difficult to understand. And the place that we're going to go to pick up on this is Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. And I invite you to go ahead and take your scripture journal, your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 10. It's where we've come in our studies. While you're doing that, welcome to those who are watching online or in the classic venue or in the Moon campus. Glad that you are with us for this as well. Mark chapter 10 is where we've come in our studies. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Mark is a gospel. There are four gospels in the Bible. The first four books, the first four gospels, if you will, of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible, the first four are gospels. We're looking into one called Mark, and the reason it's named Mark is because that's the author, a guy by the name of Mark. And we've been making our way through this whole book, one passage at a time, and today we come to this one. We're going to take a look at what Jesus is explaining to us is his purpose for what he is doing and what it then looks like for us to recognize what he is doing and taking that on for ourselves and how we might be followers. That's what this whole book is about, is how to be a follower of Jesus. And so what we're going to be digging into today is we take a look at this message we're just calling Seeing Clearly. Seeing Clearly is this message for today because we need to see clearly some things that oftentimes we miss if we're going to be solid followers of Jesus Christ. So there are a few of those here in this passage I want to point out. I'll give you the point first and then we'll go ahead and explain what that's all about. So here's the first one. The first is to accept the divine plan. To see more clearly we need to accept the divine plan. 
plan. In our journey through Mark's gospel, we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot, long period of time. In fact, we've made our way all the way from Mark 1 to the end of Mark chapter 10 is about three years. It's the three years of Jesus' ministry here on this earth, and we're just about to enter into that cataclysmic week of Jesus' life that's going to ultimately end with the cross, and it's going to end with the resurrection. So we're just about ready to enter into that. And because of the place that this fits in Jesus' life and ministry, the words that he has to say here seem or should be kind of heightened for us in a special way. We need to pay special attention to what is being said. So what is being said? Let's take a look at it. Verse 32 says this, and they were on the road. This is the disciples and Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." Now, this is the third different time that Jesus has explained what's coming, has explained the cross that is ahead. The first time was in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. That's the first place he mentions it. In Mark 9, verse 31, a chapter later, he mentions it again, and he has another detail when he spells it out there. And here in our passage today, in Mark chapter 10, this is the third time that he has mentioned it to them. And here he adds even more details. In fact, there are a few very important details he adds here that he hasn't spoken to before. Let me point these out to you. You might want to jot them down. The first of them comes in verse 33. It is this, an additional detail, that we are going up to Jerusalem. He says we're going up to Jerusalem. This is the first time that Jesus has mentioned where he is going to die. Where he's going. And that's particularly poignant right now. Why? Because they're about to enter into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the Jewish headquarters, the religious headquarters for the Jews. And this is the time of Passover, so there are pilgrims that have come from all over the place. The city is brimming with people, and the stage is set. So that's one piece he adds here that he hadn't mentioned before. Another one also comes in verse 33. It is this. He says, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Previously, Jesus had told the disciples that he was going to be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, and we've already seen some of that that has happened, the beginning of that rejection. But here he says he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, specifically meaning the Romans, who were Gentiles. And this is important because the Jews were not allowed to carry out crucifixion as a means of execution. In fact, they couldn't even condemn some, they could condemn someone, but they couldn't carry out execution under the Roman authority. If they would have killed somebody, it would have been stoning. But now that the Romans are on the scene and he's handed over to the Romans, that leads to their means of execution, which is crucifixion, which has to happen because that's in keeping with what the prophecy about Jesus said. So he adds that piece to the mix. Then there's another one he adds in verse 34, which says this. It's that he will mock, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and 
kill him. And that's jarring enough to us, but it would have been even more so to the ears of those listening. Why? Because they would have connected that together with prophecy. Prophecies from places like Isaiah 50 and 53, where it spoke of the fact that this is the means through which Jesus would die. It is all coming together, and Jesus puts these additional details on the table for them to see and come to understand. Now, even though Jesus has been repeating this message of his death and of his resurrection over and over now, at least these three times, the disciples still aren't catching on. The disciples are still a bit blinded. They need to see clearly, but they're missing out on it here to this point. They're failing to see. They are failing to accept his divine plan. The first time that Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be killed, again, was back in Mark chapter 8 and in verse 31. And when he says it there, Do you remember what happened? What did Peter say? Peter rebuked Jesus for what he said because it was out of keeping with what Peter believed the outcome should be. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, the second time he brings it up, remember what happened there? It says that they did not understand and they were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. Now here is the third occasion and unfortunately they don't seem to be any more clued in here than they were before. And we might be tempted to shake our heads about the, the thick skulled blindness of these disciples. We have to recognize that we're looking at it from a very different vantage point than they were. We're looking back. We've got the, the benefit of 2020 hindsight to see its history to us. But whenever there are circumstances that are sort of unfolding before you, you need some spiritual sight and understanding in order to recognize really what those are all about. And it's not just them, it's us too that need that. Because Jesus has his purposes that he wants to work out in our lives also, and he spelled it out really very plainly for us. He's told us what it is all about, but we can become very consumed with our own thoughts and with our own actions and with our own desires. And it keeps us from understanding his desires because ours can step in and they can actually overwhelm what his purpose is for us. That's what's happening for these disciples. See, the problem is this, that for many of us, we don't approach the Bible. We don't approach the Bible looking to be informed, but to be endorsed. We don't come looking to be informed. God, what would you teach me? What would I learn? We come to be endorsed. God, just sign off on what I'm doing, would you please? Sign off on my plan. Support me. We don't come humbly. Lord, teach me. We come, Lord, back me up. Get in my corner. And even though the things that we find here may not back up the plans that we're moving toward, oftentimes we just plow ahead anyway. We just keep going. We just keep doing our own thing for our own purposes, and to our own ends without being willing to do any soul-searching. The better course is to let go of the arrogance that lives like we can't be taught anything and accept the divine plan. The disciples were missing it altogether, and we can miss it too. One key to seeing clearly is that we need to accept the divine plan. Another one is this, to adopt the humble position to adopt the humble position. Keep in mind now that Jesus has just been talking about the fact that he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified. Now with that hanging in the air, we go on, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, 
what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> and they said to him, grant us to sit, one in your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus speaks of the cross, and all the disciples can do is think about themselves. It's the wrong response. Kind of reminds me of the guy who was out, he was on the eighth green, and he was playing golf with his buddies. Then there was a, a parade, a procession that came by of a, a funeral procession that came rolling by, and he's there on the green, and he, he takes off his hat, and he sort of stands and in honor of what's driving by, and some of his golfing buddies are like, man, we're really impressed that, that you're showing such honor to that person going by. He said, hey, it's the least I can do when I've been married to her for the last 52 years. Okay, I don't know if it's true. I'm just saying that I heard about this guy. All right? It's the least he could, it, absolutely, that was the very least that he could do. And actually, that's kind of what's going on here. This is the least the disciples can do. Jesus has just said, I'm going to the cross. And they're like, hey, could we have big status in your kingdom? Could we be big deals? Could you sit us right beside you? They're thinking about themselves, their own prominence, their own position, their own power is what's on their mind. For three years, Jesus has served them, served others, and given himself away, and it looks like the disciples haven't learned a single thing. Sometimes I wonder whether or not Jesus is kind of frustrated with us in that same way. Some of us have been following Jesus a very long time, and we still do foolish things. Have you learned anything? He might say to me. He might say to us. Beyond that, they clearly don't understand the implications of their decisions or their own desires on themselves. Verse 38, Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus was about to pay the highest price imaginable by dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. And he's saying, guys, do you think you can live with me as I move through those? You think I, you can walk with me and all of that? You can be part of all of this? And they're like, yeah, sure, absolutely. Verse 39, we are able, they say. We're able. All that this indicates is that they still don't get it. They still don't know what it is that Jesus is about to go through. What are they thinking? What have they desired all the way along? Why does Peter say or call you know, Jesus out for what he says he's going to do? Because they think that Jesus is coming to set up this other kingdom, this earthly kingdom, where he's going to be on the throne and he's going to have power and authority and everybody's going to bow down to him. And they're like, yeah, we can drink that cup they don't understand what it's all going to be about. They're missing the fact that he's coming to suffer. But it's going to become real for them. Verse 39, Jesus says, the cup that I drink, yes, you will drink it. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Though they didn't understand it at the time, the disciples would experience a significant measure of the suffering that Jesus is about to go through as they would die their own martyrs' deaths eventually. That's what he's saying. He's looking down the road for them. He says, yes, you'll drink the cup. You will be baptized with a baptism that I am going through, not meaning, meaning a water baptism, but the suffering 
and the trial and the pain and the, the problem of it all. However, James and John don't see it, and neither do the other disciples. In fact, the other disciples think that James and John are trying to pull a fast one by getting special places, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they be, began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus knows these other ten. They've got self-serving hearts just like James and John. He says, guys, come here. We got to talk. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, look around you. Look at the Romans. Look at the Gentiles. That's the way that the hierarchy of power works. If you have authority, exercise it over everybody else. Squash other people. Hold them down. Issue executive orders. Crack the whip. If you're in charge, flex your muscles. That's how it is in the world. Jesus came, as we've seen time after time after time, to turn the world system upside down, to change it. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, <coughs> and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 45 here is often considered to be the theme verse of the whole of this gospel of Mark. Look at it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Underline that. Highlight it. Star it. Circle it. Do something. Mark it so that it stands out to you because this is such an important verse in understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and summarizes it right here for us in this place. He came to serve others and he came to die for them. No selfish motivation, no vying for position, no self-aggrandizement. Always looking outside of himself, always looking to the benefit of the other. That's why he came. And he came not just to live it, he came to demonstrate it. Friends, the church is one of the only organizations that works and serves for the sake of those who aren't in the church. It's very rare. Some of you will remember back when we were thinking about and praying about the new children's wing, at least when it was new back then. Our prayer was, we were talking all the time about the fact that we were building that building for the sake of those we hadn't met yet. Now, by God's grace, a few years down the road with the building in place, we've had the opportunity to meet some of you. And we're very encouraged by that. That moves us because that's why we're here. That's what we're here to do. It's we're here to serve. Not just ourselves. We're here to serve others. That's what it's supposed to look like, but sometimes we forget that. It's easy to fall into this trap of thinking that everything's for us, for our benefit, to make me happy, to serve my needs, to look to my interests, to provide for what I desire. It's so easy to fall into this sort of consumer mindset. And sometimes you see it in the church where it's all about what can you do for me? And there's no element of how can I give? How can I serve? How can I bless? How can I benefit? How can I be a part of making things better and honor Jesus through it all? And whenever that sort of mindset, wherever that attitude 
comes up, we come, become blinded to the purposes of God, and we fail to see clearly. If we're going to be people who see clearly, we're going to have to do these things, accept the divine plan, what God has in store, the way he desires to see it lived out. We need to adopt this humble position. That's hard enough for us, but there's one more step here as well, and it's this. It's to apply the transformed perspective, and I'll explain what that means. I have a brother. He's just a couple years older than I am, so when we were growing up, there was a lot of competition between us. He played on the baseball team, so I played on the baseball team. He played golf, so I played golf. He had nine kids, so I played golf. That was where I decided, no more competition. I'm not going to try to compete with you in that. But the last of those children, the ninth child, was a girl, a preemie, actually, was born at 31 weeks, 2 pounds, 12 ounces. Now, even though there were some nervous days in the early days, by God's grace, I guess you've already seen her, by God's grace, she's done great. She's doing perfectly fine today. Two pounds, 12 ounces. Now, to look at her, you wouldn't necessarily think that. It just looks like a normal baby in one of the hospital bassinets or whatever, because there's nothing here to give you perspective, except that there is. If you look here, there's already an arrow on it, to this band on her arm. That's my brother's wedding ring. And so you can see that her arm, her hand, are no bigger than one of your fingers. Look at one of your fingers and imagine that as the baby's arm in hand, right? The ring gives us perspective. And sometimes we need something to give us perspective. And here in Mark chapter 10, he goes on these next verses to give us perspective. Look at it, verse 46. <clears throat> and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, <clears throat> the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, <clears throat> son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, why does Jesus, or Mark, put the story of Bartimaeus here? It almost kind of seems like it's out of place looking at the other things that have been happening in the gospel, in this chapter, and where it's going in chapter 11, it almost seems a little bit jarring, like it doesn't belong here. But we need to look a little more closely. This man's name is Bartimaeus, which literally means the son of Timaeus. And so it sounds pretty redundant for him to say Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, because it's essentially saying the son of Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. 
Now, is it that he just wanted to be sure we don't miss it? And so he wanted to be repetitive in that way? Well, maybe, but maybe not. I think there's something else to consider. If you look at the meaning of Timaeus, it means honor. And so Bartimaeus is the son of honor, which seems a strange name to celebrate or to highlight of a blind beggar that is there in the streets. Hardly seems like one of in a position of honor, and so we need to consider it in the context that it is in to perhaps understand. And what were James and John asking for from Jesus? Honor. They were asking for places of honor from Jesus. Just coincidence? Maybe. Also, when Jesus speaks to the blind man, he says to him in verse 51, he said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples when they wanted to be honored? He said to them back in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? The exact same thing. He says to both of them in both circumstances. More coincidence? Hmm. And what's the matter with Bartimaeus? He's blind. And what was the trouble with these disciples? They're blind, too. They don't understand. They can't accept the divine plan. They can't adopt this humble position. They're failing to do that. Just like Bartimaeus, they're blind, too. There's definitely a connection that is going on here between what has just happened and this story of Bartimaeus that gets inserted right here. The point of the story, we've got to see other things also, though. The point of the story and the reason why Mark has placed it here is what Bartimaeus did. Did you notice it? Here was a man who was conscious of his blindness, and the disciples were not. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, he gets tremendously excited. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus' simple reply is, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus heals him because of his faith. And I believe that Jesus is connecting the disciples to this blind man because the disciples need to see too. Because they're also blind. They were limited by their own perspective on who Jesus came to be, and they're limited based on who it is that they want to be in the kingdom of God, that place of prominence and and position. They're advancing their own plan. They're vying for their own personal power. And it would be better for them to just answer Jesus' query as to, what is it you want me to do for you just by saying, as Bartimaeus does as our example, I want to see. We need to see. We recognize our blindness, and our greatest desire is that you would help us to see. Bartimaeus is their example, and he's wanting them to learn. This transformed perspective is what he wants them to take on. That's the same sort of transformed perspective we all need also. If Jesus were to come to you today and ask you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say to him? The disciples said that which elevated themselves, glorified themselves, sought out their own 
honor. That's what they asked for. What would you ask for? I can imagine a number of awesome things that we could ask for. We might ask for better people to work with. I mean, that's not something I personally would ask for, because you know who I work with. Well, you figure it out for yourself. All right. That's one of the things that you might pray for, or you might pray for a better marriage, or you might pray for better relationship with your kids, or you might pray for a better job or a better car, or you might pray for more friends. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, and because they sound like good things to be focused on, we pray them and we think we're good. We don't have to go any further. We can appease ourselves, as we talked about last week, with our morality, with our desire, with the steps that we've taken, and we don't have to go any further. However, as far as we've gotten, as far as you get with those requests, you still haven't gotten to the place of what Jesus is saying is absolutely essential. What needs to be central, he's elevating the essential, central attribute of, for any Christ follower, which is to be a servant. You can't be in the place of honoring God, Christ, in your life if you're not centered on being a servant. You can't do it. Jesus said this, just to remind you of some of what we have seen already in this text. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then to prove that he was serious about that, he said this as he went on. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what it looks like to apply this transformed perspective. It's what it'll look like in us. The inescapable truth from this passage is that a genuine Christ follower is first and foremost a servant. Is that what you look at yourself and see? Do you look at yourself and say, yes, clearly, I'm focused on not just serving myself, not just looking for my own self-aggrandizement. I am looking for the opportunity to serve and to give and to love and to care and to get outside of myself. Where are you at with that? He says you can't be a genuine follower without being a servant. And until we prioritize serving God and others, we're never going to find spiritual fulfillment. We're never going to find ourselves truly partnering with the purposes of God in this world, in our life. There's always going to be an emptiness until we learn to give ourselves away. But it's so hard to do. It's not what we're taught. It's not what's modeled for us in the world that's around us. What we're modeled with is serving ourselves. Seeking to find how many people we can get to serve us. Jesus flips it on its head. And we're not going to see clearly either, just like the disciples don't, until we take hold of serving as Jesus served. And whether you're barely started on that, whether you would say, you know what, I'm not sure I've ever taken a step in that direction, or whether you're well on your way, 
the next step is the same. It's to serve. It's to engage. If you want to defeat the priorities of the world around us, we complain about them a lot. If we want to be part of defeating them, our step is to serve. Of course, we've got loads of uh, you know, objections. They don't deserve to be served. They're not going to serve me in return. That's okay. Jesus doesn't serve because somebody's going to serve him in return. In fact, he serves the very ones who put him on the cross. That's the model. Knowing that even if it feels like somebody else is getting an advantage over us because we're serving them and they're not serving us in return, we recognize that we're ultimately not looking for glory from them. We're looking for glory from him. And for the well done that ultimately he will say. So friends, what's that look like for you? Where can you serve? Where can you step up? Where can this be more a characteristic of who you are and how you live day by day by day. It's not just an action, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of the heart that transforms us to take on that perspective. It's not easy. We'll slip. We'll go another direction. But we can't slip from it until we're in it. So I challenge you in. Whatever that would mean for you, opening yourself up for an opportunity. I promise you, if you pray at the beginning of the day, Lord, give me an opportunity to serve, you will see it. Because it's always there. It's just a matter of whether or not we see it, whether or not we're willing to walk into it. Take the opportunity. It's what we need to do if we're going to be seeing clearly. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, this uh, kind of lays us out as we think about the responsibility that is ours because of what you have come to do to what you have taught us through Mark and through Jesus, this mindset to take on, this understanding that can be so hard to accept and realize and, and build into who we are. Lord, I just pray that we would find one place where we can take this step and that we will do so just acknowledging we're doing this in response to what we've learned here in this place. We don't want to fall in the trap of the disciples and just be about ourselves, actually pushing you away, your purposes away, because we're pursuing our own. Lord, I just pray that we would be tender to the opportunities to serve that pop up over and over and over again, and that we would step in and that we would recognize that we're defeating the pull of self by laying ourselves down for others. Lord, may we be bold to take those steps, knowing that we honor you as we do so, knowing that it's a step of seeing more clearly who you are and who you've made us to be. Lord, in the days ahead, open our mind, give us the courage to serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.